And thank you so much. Good morning. On this weekend leading to the 4th of July, we're going to be looking today at a battle that maybe relates to where some of us are at today. Have you ever reached a situation in your own personal experience where you felt as though everything is so overwhelming that you feel hemmed in from all sides, that it seems as though the odds are insurmountable and you don't know what to do? If you've reached that point in life before, or if you're at that point now, this passage we're looking at this morning is for you. Because as we're turning to Second Chronicles chapter 20, and we left off last week, here was King Jehoshaphat, who was praying out loud before God, and he cried out, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. There was a coalition of nations that had surrounded the people of Judah. They were marching distance of coming in and conquering. It seemed as though as Jehoshaphat looked out over his own armed forces that his resources were limited and minuscule in comparison to what the coalition forces offered. And so as he looks out over the horizon, he realizes, I don't have what it takes. He looks upward to the one who has what it takes. And this morning, if you find yourself in that kind of predicament, these verses are for you. So now with that launching pad, as we pick up from where we left off last week, we're at the very end of verse 12. Here's King Jehoshaphat of Judah, and he's crying out, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We're informed in verse 13 of that 20th chapter that all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. So all the families now are being biblically educated, which is what I pray that this congregation is known for as well. A multiple generation approach towards communicating truth, no matter how old or how young. But then we're informed in verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and a descendant of Asaph as he stood in the assembly. Now look what comes next. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. Tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, 
and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them. And the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. And then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So we're going to be looking at these words and more. But what we're going to try to understand is that when you and I are facing impossible situations in life, and the natural tendency is to be self-focused, here by the word of the Lord, we're challenged to be God-focused. As we now look to our Lord in prayer. So Father, what we're doing now is we are allowing these eyes of our hearts, so to speak, to be opened. What we need is a fresh glimpse of grace and a renewed sense of your work. We want, Father, to be able to focus our attention upon the one who is sovereign over all things and who sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. I want to pray in particular for any of these services, the three this morning, and for those, of course, in some vacation travels, that no matter where we're at in our our life journey right now, if we find ourselves facing that something which seems to be insurmountable, it could very well be that you are positioning us so that we have to look vertically and get a fresh sense of who you are. So, Father, warm these hearts and engage these minds. As again, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the scene that appears now on the screen behind me. The man who's kneeling is a major in the Union forces prior to the Civil War. His name is Major Robert Anderson. The picture is taken from the Kennedy Galleries in New York. And it describes a scene 100 days before civil war would break out. Notice the inspiration that this man is producing among his fellow troops. He's addressed them and he's kneeling, but he is looking where? Upward. As they in turn are involved in prayer. What's interesting about this scene is that this scene took place at Fort Sumter. 
On December 20th of 1860, the State Convention of South Carolina voted to secede from the Union. And it demanded that Fort Sumter be turned over to its state government. They commanded and demanded that the U.S. troops leave Fort Sumter, but President Lincoln refused to acquiesce and said, instead began to send added troops and food supplies in that direction. But the Carolinians were determined to seize that fort. And they threatened to starve to death the men that were there. They fired on this fort. It was how the war began in April of 1861. 100 days before this scene was unfolding, in that fort, where Major Anderson was already sensing something is going wrong here. We are limited in our resources, and we have nowhere to turn. He looks upward toward his God. This morning, if you find yourself so limited in your natural resources and your understanding, and you don't know what to do, you have to embrace the informing theology of Second Chronicles found in chapter 7, in that verse 14, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven will forgive their sins and heal their land. And now what the chronicler Ezra is doing for us is that he's giving us another illustration of Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and this is what Jehoshaphat is now doing in this passage, the result is this. Two significant distinctives of revival begin to unfold before our very eyes that are found in these verses. The first distinctive that's going to appear on the screen, we're going to phrase like this, number one. That in times of revival, God's word stirs us to deep, authentic worship. In times of revival, the refreshing periods given by God. God's word stirs us to deep, authentic worship. But what's so interesting for a nation or for individuals is that more often than not, this takes place when people are in an extreme situation where they have nowhere to turn but to look up. We do not know what to do, Jehoshaphat says, but our eyes are upon you. And now multiple generations are watching this leader as he's looking upward toward his God. And then the word of God breaks in, doesn't it? As it always does. 
and verse 14 informs us that there's this man by the name of Jehaziel. He's a Levite. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. We're told of five generations that he's linked to. He's a descendant of Asaph in verse 14, which means that he's tied directly back to the times in which, in which his descendants ministered in the courts of David and Solomon. Now, he's got something to say here. Here, the word of God is about to be proclaimed in verse 14 through 17. And he says, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Not my opinion. This is what the Lord says to you. God's word. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, when God's word is being proclaimed like this, there are two elements that stand out in the midst of this outpouring of the Spirit and revival. One, we become increasingly aware of God's power. You see it in verse 15. You'll see it again in verse 17. This is God's battle. It's not Jehoshaphat's battle. There are times when it seems as though everything is so insurmountable that in your natural resources you feel incapable of being able to take on the basic routines of life. In such times of extremes, we allow God's word to be placed over us. And God's word then stirs us to this deep, authentic experience of worship. And as we do so, we become increasingly aware of God's power. Now, there's some here this morning that may feel so weakened by life internally Though externally, you look strong. You look like you got it together. But internally, it seems as though the fortresses are being bombarded by life experiences. Look at what this man, Jehaziel, has to say to Jehoshaphat and the people. Powerful words come out. Do not be afraid or discouraged, he says. And now the thinking person there in the crowd says, that's what God said to Joshua. When Joshua was taking the leadership from Moses, what was it that God did to empower Joshua to feel as though he's not in the shadow of Moses, but rather in the shadow of God? In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, similar words were impressed into the heartbeat of Joshua himself. We need words like that as well this morning. Don't be afraid or discouraged. 
In his case, because of this vast army. Notice the next phrase. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And another, maybe a child looks up at a parent at this point and says, that's what David said to Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Parent looks down at the child and says, You've done well in Awana. Verse 47. David saw such an insurmountable figure that caused the rest of the people of Israel to shrink back. But you see, he was living in the shadow of God, not Goliath, and he was able to move forward. Which shadow are you in? You see, Jehoiah's here, is able to say, the battle is not yours, but God's. And so as Jehaziel then continues, he then gives them marching orders. And you and I need a strategy for living. A battle plan for life. In this particular case, in verse 16, He goes on to say, tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up by the pass of seas, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. Notice the detail by which prophetically he's able to speak. But notice the wording that comes next. Sound familiar? Take up your positions, stand firm, And see the deliverance the Lord will give you. That, in essence, were the same words that were used by Moses when he himself was finding a situation similar where the Egyptians were crowding their space. Moses answers the people in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13 Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. But they've got to take their positions. Which means then, in this particular case, they have to position themselves to be able to see the sovereign workings of God. Parents? Are you positioning your family so that they are in a place where they can see the sovereign workings of God? When you feel as though life is so overwhelming, are you positioning yourself spiritually to be observant in what's happening in other people's lives so that you're better prepared for how God may choose to work in your own personal experience? Are you wisely positioning yourself to be able to see what God is up and about? Oh, Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. He reemphasizes this. Go out to face them tomorrow and mark the next phrase, underline it, apply it. The Lord will be with you.
Here is the other significant element when God's word stirs us to deep, authentic worship. Not only do we become increasingly aware of God's power, we also become increasingly aware of God's presence, as you now see on the screen in verse 17. Notice the phrasing, the Lord will be with you. Over 100 times in the Bible, that phrase, with you, is used as a means of divine assurance when his people are being put in situations that seem so overwhelming. What we need is to couple the power of God with the presence of God to better appreciate the glory of God. Look at the next picture that appears on the screen. See the man standing? It's Robert E. Lee, a commander of the southern troops. He's leading his soldiers in the North Virginia contingent in prayer. This is November of 1863. It would be the trigger by which over 7,000 Confederate troops would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now we've seen Major Anderson on his knees representing the North. We see Lee standing, praying to God, representing the South. All of this triggered by a Supreme Court decision in the 1850s uh, pertaining to the whole matter of slavery. And now when you and I look carefully what we see is that even though the nation was pulling apart politically, the nation was coming together spiritually. And the spiritual always precedes the political. And so now, revival was breaking out, and historians inform us that over 100,000 troops in the South came to saving faith. And between one to 200,000 troops of the North came to saving faith. And that by the end of the war, there was such a movement of the Holy Spirit. People were able to understand as to how the spiritual preceded the political. As God was at work, you see. God was at work in their midst. Now, with all that in mind, Jehoshaphat, in verse 18, bows with his face to the ground. In other words, what we've done is we've coupled together the Word of God with the worship of God. In times of revival, the God's Word stirs us to deep, authentic worship. We get a sense of God's power. We get a sense of God's presence. Word feeds worship. Jehoshaphat bows down, and yet God has not yet even intervened. Are you able to worship God deeply, authentically, really in the deepest realm, even before he's answered your prayer? Or is your worship contingent upon him intervening first? 
The worship preceded the intervention. All the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. There was the sense of the power of God. There was the sense of the presence of God. Robert Coleman writes, For 185 hours without interruption, the services at Osbury College and Divinity School had continued. The year 1970. During all this time, there was no pressure, no scheduled meetings, no paid advertising. No one tried to compile any statistics. Praise God. We didn't fall into the sin of the census that David committed. It was felt that this would be out of keeping with the spirit of revival. The lights in Hughes Auditorium still have not been turned out. The spiritual tone of the campus has completely changed. Now, months later, still people are gathering in the evening to pray, witness, rejoice. Often these meetings last into the midnight hours with visitors not infrequently being helped on to God. Also, during most hours of the day, someone may still be seen entering the chapel. They kneel. They pray, they leave. Others just sit and stare at the altar, so rife with memory. And if one looks closely, tears may be seen coursing down their cheeks. There's no human vocabulary that can capture the full dimension of this divine moment of revival. In some ways, it almost seems like a dream, yet it happened. We saw it with our eyes in a way impossible to describe, quote, unquote, God was in our midst. And here in the thick of the battle, with the coalitions enveloping them, here is Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, And here now is this prophetic statement, the Lord will be with you. And now you've combined God's power with God's presence. In times of revival, God's word stirs us to deep, authentic worship. And the worship preceded the intervention. But now having said that, this leads us to the second significant distinctive of revival. The number two, in times of revival... God's work stirs us to profound, real joy. The Word of God triggers the work of God, and the Word of God makes people increasingly conscious of the work of God. They're joined together, they're not separated. So early in the morning of verse 20, they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you'll be successful. Fascinating. He's saying have faith in God and in God's word. When he says in the prophets as well. By emphasizing faith at this point, 
Two significant aspects of God's work trigger responses within us. Number one, we reestablish our trust in our Lord. Verse 20 through 23. He makes a challenge with regarding faith in verse 20. And then he has the people positioned in verse 21 and 22. After consulting the people in verse 21, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But if I'm commander of the troops, I'm going to put my best marksmen at the front, not singers in the front. I mean, I like musicians. But I want my marksmen up there. But you know what he's doing? He's making a statement here that this is God's battle. It's not the soldier's battle. There's a divine warrior here in their midst. And what interests us all the more is that they sing praise before the intervention, not after. Now, the challenge to faith is found in verse 20. The positioning of faith is found in verses 21 and 22. The timing regarding faith is in verse 23. And notice in particular, verse 22 on into 23. In 22, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. Did you see that? As they began to sing, God intervenes. He waits for the worship and then the intervention comes. And you're saying, Gary, I could use some intervention in my own life. Let me tell you a little story. Last week I headed off to check on my father and my mother. In the 80s, my father has stage 4 cancer. And I wanted to get a sense of where things now stand. And so I headed off to Holland, Michigan. And so as I was praying along the way, I was praying, Lord, you know, I've got a lot on my plate. My eyes are on you. I was praying this text. Arrive there, and with sleeves rolled up, pull out the power tools, go to work, start getting things done around the house, pull out the electric hedges and cutting down, you know, the shrubs and everything. It's overgrown. My dad's at the window, and I can see he's getting teary-eyed because he used to be big and strong. Now he's down to 116 pounds. I go inside and I say, hey, let's go to the grocery store. And so we head off and he balances himself with the grocery cart. He's making his rounds and he's doing comparative shopping. He's even getting down on his knees holding these jars to see which one's the better price. He's going on eight and nine. I can see the fire still in his eyes. I like that. He's the one with patents out on medicines that probably some of us are using even this morning. 
go back home and I'm with him as we work on finances and he's still got it. He's working the numbers and he's up to speed. I'm feeling good about that. But I'm still feeling as though, Lord, I'm here. He's there. What, how do we bridge this gap? My sister, an assistant principal of a high school, arrives. We're talking in the house. And then I say, Marianne, I'm about to go across the street. Just say hi to the woman over there. So I go across the street, and I say, hi, my name is Gary Highlander. And she says, I've heard of you. I was afraid of that. <laughs> she said, you, I've listened to you on the Internet. You don't, you're, yes, I am. I am David and Jeanette's son. Now, tears are beginning to roll down her cheeks when she says, I so admire your parents because I see them caring for your Down syndrome sister and walking her down the street, getting her exercise and assisting her and the likes. And she said, I, I email some of my classmates from college about your parents who have Down syndrome children as well. And I said, where'd you go to college? She said, Wheaton College. And I said, I went to Wheaton College. Now she's really getting teary. I said, tell me a little bit about your husband. She said, he's a professor at Hope College. I asked, well, what does he teach? And she says, he teaches German. I said, I have a nephew at Hope College, just completed his freshman year. His name is Josh, Josh Dykstra. Josh Dykstra, she says. I have a son who's a freshman who knows Josh Dykstra. I said, yeah, Josh worked for his uncle, Todd, who recently passed away. Todd, she said, I was in his room just before he passed away, and I saw this tall man on his knees praying for Todd. I said, that was my brother-in-law, Craig Dykstra. Now you're going to just see her heart pounding. And I said, so how did you become so fluent in German? And she said, well, after graduating from Wheaton and so on, we headed off to Germany. And from there, we, my husband and I, we headed off to Austria. And I said, Austria? And I said, you know, there are two very special families in our congregation that I, I pastor. I love them dearly. One's Don and Bob Silvis, and the other's Dick and Els Berenzi. And she leans forward, and she says, Dick was my pastor. She races into the house, crying and crying and crying, and comes back out. Says, I have to have your email. I have to have your phone number. I've got to have everything so that I can let you know how your parents are doing. Meanwhile, I've been praying, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. Now, I say that not as a reservoir, but as a channel. Because it's not about my parents, it's about God, you see. And it's about the God who is all-powerful and the God who is all-present. And if you don't know what to do, keep your eyes upon him.
And when we do it, we reestablish our trust in our Lord, verse 20 through 23. Now God intervenes in the midst of the singing, in the midst of the worship. Intervention takes place. Don't overlook the timing of this, you see. And then tie it together with verse 27 onward. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned, how? Joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to what? Rejoice over their enemies. Here is the second significant element regarding how we relate to God's work. We experience true peace from our Lord. We have said God's work stirs us to profound real joy. They return joyfully in verse 27. They are rejoicing in verse 27. Now pick it up in verse 29 and look what comes next. The fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Israelites had fought. No. They'd heard the singing and then saw and experienced the intervention. They heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Revival leads to evangelism, you see. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at what? Notice the second significant element, peace, shalom. For his God had given him grace, in other words, rest, rest on every side. Revival broke out in 1905 in this nation. Notice what appears on the screen next. This is an article taken from the Denver Post of January 20th of 1905. Look at the headline. Entire city pauses for prayer, even at the high tide of business. Remarkable outburst of gospel sentiment. Noonday meetings draw congregations unprecedented in numbers. For two hours at midday, all Denver was held in a spell. The marts of trade were deserted between noon and two o'clock this afternoon. And all worldly affairs were forgotten. And the entire city was given over to meditation of higher things. The Spirit of the Almighty pervaded every nook. Going to and coming from the great meetings, the thousands of men and women radiated the Spirit which filled them, and the clear Colorado sunshine was made brighter by the reflected glow of the light of God shining from happy faces. Seldom has such a remarkable sight been witnessed. An entire great city, in the middle of a busy weekday, bowing before the throne of heaven, asking and receiving the blessing of who? 
the king of the universe and the kingdom was at peace. For his God had given him rest on every side as the word of God combined with the work of God captures our attention and challenges us to give glory to God. Is that happening in your heart? I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. Let's stand together. We can't manufacture revival. We don't announce in advance there will be revival. But rather through repentant hearts filled with faith in you. Eyes wide open to your work ears wide open to your word, we come before you humbly. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, it's then as you've laid down these conditions that the blessings flow. Bless that one who seems so overwhelmed, Father, as he or she now looks upward and focuses upon you. We'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.